Good to go? All right. Um, so uh, last week when we were here, uh, we wrapped up Aristotle, um, and we talked about how Aristotle's uh, metaphysics uh, led to the early formations of the cosmological argument for the existence of God, um, and his telos, or idea of the telos, led to the early formations of the teleological argument for the existence of God. And then we used that as a jumping off point to talk about Anselm's argument from power and Anselm's argument, uh, the ontological argument. We talked about modern arguments um, for intelligent design, like the anthropic principle, and we finished up with a Vantillian transcendental presuppositional apologetics. Um, today, um, we get to move to the next major philosophic figure in history. So we've covered Plato, Aristotle. Um, Aristotle dies in 322 BC, so 322 years before Christ, Aristotle dies. Um, and the world is plunged into darkness, or at least the uh, anti-Christian scholars have called the Dark Ages, um, after the death of the Golden Age of philosophy with Plato and Aristotle. So the next major figure we come across is St. Augustine, who doesn't come onto the scene. He was born in 354 AD um, in Thagast, North Africa. So we're talking about a pretty substantial period of time between the death of Aristotle and Augustine. And if you were taking a contemporary philosophy course um, at a non-Christian school, um, you wouldn't cover Augustine next. You would cover Plato, Aristotle, and then you would jump all the way from Aristotle's death in 322 to Descartes in 1600 AD. So you talk about a 2,000-year gap of history where basically the world has said no philosophy occurs, no new thought, um, no fruit in the garden of thought. Um, and that's a very, very pejorative way of looking at history um, because all of the great work that was done was done by the Catholic saints. It was done by St. Augustine and St. Anselm and St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so today um, we're going to recall or uh, tell the story of Augustine's life, which most of you are probably familiar with, uh, more so than probably anything we've covered in this course, uh, because this is a, a very Augustinian rich tradition that you're in at this church. Um, so we're going to talk about his life and the problem that dominated, or he focused much of his attention on throughout his life, the problem of evil. Um, now, I certainly did not plan to do this lecture today at this time, right before Memorial Day, um, but through some uh, stroke of cosmic luck or uh, divine providence, um, I guess we'd say in these circles, it happens that we're going to talk about the problem of evil right before Memorial Day, where we remember the great evil that is going on in the world and has gone in the world. Um, and as one of my favorite songwriters, uh, Bob Dylan's younger son, Jacob Dylan, says, evil is alive and evil is well in one of his songs. And it certainly is. Uh, most people are unaware. Um, now, you guys aren't like my students that I get to teach who are completely unaware of this. You get Pastor Vance telling you every week from the pulpit. But uh, evil is certainly alive in the world. Um, there's been 22,000 plus terrorist attacks in the name of Islam post 9-11. 22,000 in the name of Allah post 9-11. So that's a massive, a massive amount of evil just in one strain. Um, so this question and this problem of how could a good God allow all of this evil in the world, and especially a God who preordains everything, a God who foreknows everything. So a God has knowledge of everything that's going to happen, and yet there is a rampant amount of evil in the world. And this was a question that dominated Augustine's life. Um, and we get the major account of this 
um, in his confessions. Um, has anyone read the confessions? I'm sure a bunch of you have pieced through it, right? A bunch of you have read some of the confessions, or at least an abridged version. Um, Augustine's major philosophical and theological works are his confessions, um, his city of God, which if you're going to read, read an abridged version because it's long. It's awesome. Um, if you got the time, read the whole thing. And his uh, De Trinitate, his work on the Trinity. Um, but most of you are somewhat familiar, I'm sure, with the confessions. Um, and this is where Augustine um, basically confesses all of the sins he's committed in his life. And he deals with his own suffering and the problem of evil that he's encountered. Now, modern scholars have looked at Augustine and many call him a uh, sex maniac um, when they categorize his work. Because they look at the confessions and Augustine actually recalls a great majority, if not all, of his sins in quite explicit detail. He talks about going to the whorehouses. Um, he talks about all of the litty, little itty-bitty sins, um, even things as little as he recalls being such a great sinner when he was a child. He says, crying for my mother's milk. What a great sinner I was. How egocentric children are, right? Because children, he doesn't look at as, oh, the sweet angelic cherubs that we think of. He thinks of them as being selfish, needy little creatures, right? That only care about themselves, right? I'm hungry. I need to go to the bathroom. I want to be played with. That's it. I'm the center of everything. And Augustine saw that as evil in the child. Um, so the modern scholars, when they look at Augustine, they say this guy was just out of his mind. He was a sex maniac. Um, but I always challenge people, imagine if you had the wherewithal or you had the mindset that Augustine had that constantly, as you lived your life, you were intensely and constantly reminded of every sin you had ever committed. And they were playing for you on a big screen right in front of you. And you had to constantly walk through every little thing you had done wrong your whole life. You would look at yourself as a disgusting, perverse person, I'm sure. Um, and so Augustine has that mindset. He understands the totality of sin, right? Which Calvin will call the total depravity. Not that we are totally and depraved, but that everything that we do is corrupted. And Augustine saw that. Um, Augustine, like most of us, is the major figures in his life were his mother and his father. And these figures, as, you, as they're unfolded to us in the Confessions, could not be any more different from one another. His father, Patroclus, was a hard-drinking womanizer. Um, his mother, Monica, was a puritanical Christian um, who was constantly and continually, at least according to the Confessions, in prayer for her son, St. Augustine, who would become St. Augustine. Um, he was uh, often referred to as Augustine of Hippo because he was the Bishop of North Africa. So Augustine's born in 354 AD in Thagast. He has these polar opposite figures in his life um, and he's battling constantly this problem of evil. Monica tells me, my mother tells me, God is good, yet I see evil in the world and even further, I constantly see evil in myself. I see it in the small child. Um, the first major event that he recalls in his life, um, you're probably familiar with, is the famous Augustine pear tree incident. Um, Augustine is a small child, probably seven, eight years old, um, is hanging out with some friends, and they decide that they are going to steal some pears from his neighbor's pear tree. And Augustine does it. Um, and he recalls, as an older man writing the Confessions, how intensely evil that act was. And it was intensely evil, not just because he stole the pears, but because he said, I had no hunger at all. I didn't even eat the pear. 
I didn't want that pair, but why did I do it? I did it because I knew it was wrong. And the thrill of doing what was wrong enticed me, right? And he saw that as a really, really deeply evil thing. This is what he calls the first major turning point in his life. Um, as Augustine grows, um, he starts to develop a lot of the habits of his father, Patroclus. Um, he starts to become somewhat of a womanizer himself. He goes off to school in Carthage, and he starts to visit the whorehouses and the bordellos. Um, and he recalls these um, adventures of sorts in his confessions. Um, and he knew, once again, while he was doing this, he had Monica's influence always nagging on him in the background that this was wrong, he shouldn't be doing these things. And he even prayed a somewhat sarcastic prayer, which has become quite famous. He says, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Now, that was his prayers as a young man. He said, I shouldn't be doing this thing, but it's too much fun. I want to do it, and I'm enticed by the evil. So give me chastity, but give it, to give it to me when I'm older. Right? I'll repent later on. Right? We have the, the great justification. Right? So we can repent on our deathbed. We can live a good life and do whatever we want, and then God will save us. So he said, you know, give me chastity, but not yet. Um, so Augustine is struggling with the problem of evil, and because of this struggle, he finds it very, very hard to accept the Christianity which Monica is somewhat forcing down his throat. Um, so as a young, educated man, off in Carthage, Augustine starts to stray away from the faith. He had never really made it his own. Um, and he come, becomes very, very influenced by uh, Manichaeanism. Um, and most of you probably aren't familiar with Manichaeanism because it's not around anymore. It's been condemned by the church as heresy. Um, anyone at all familiar with Manichaeanism? Do, do you know what the central draw of Manichaeanism would be to a guy like Augustine? Uh, duality. Yeah. Duality of, uh, good evil. Yeah, 100%. Manichaeanism is a dualistic religion. It was started by a Persian man by the name of Manny, and Manny actually believed he was the Holy Spirit. Um, he believed he was the Holy Spirit incarnate. Um, he eventually was crucif not crucified, but uh, burned alive um, by his followers. Um, but Augustine was drawn to Manny's Manichaeanism because it was a dualistic religion. Um, and all that basically means is a dualistic religion is one that believes that the world was formed by the product of two opposing forces. There is a good force and there is a completely separate evil force. And they fight over dominion over this world. They're completely separate things. And Augustine was drawn to this duality because it led him to believe, well, this evil, all the gross, terrible things that I do in my life, it's not actually me. It's some evil part that has snuck into the goodness that is me. And what I can do is I can somehow push that evil out because it's not really me. It's a separate thing altogether. Um, and the modern world, although in many ways we're not dualistic, we fall into this sort of dualism when we think of sin and evil, right? Anytime somebody does something, especially something horrific, a school shooting, they beat their wife, you always hear the person say, that, was, that, that really wasn't like them. That's so not their character, right? That's not really how they were. We were shocked to see it. And that's a dualistic thing. That's not really how we are. Well, we would look at it and Calvin would look at it. No, 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 that's how you are. You're evil. And when you're not doing evil, it's because of the grace of God that's keeping you from doing evil. No, that's part of you. But Augustine struggling with this problem of evil was embraced Manichaeanism because it let him say, 
you know what? You're not the one that's evil. It's something else that's part of you. Now, Augustine, this gave him somewhat of a sense of peace and calm that he could say he's not the one that's particularly evil. But he was an educated man. Um, and the story that Manny told uh, started to become suspect as science developed and the new astronomical findings of the day did not fit with the story that Manny was telling about the creation of the universe. And it basically came to be quite clear to Augustine that this stuff isn't true. It doesn't mesh up with reality. So although he loved the dualistic peace that he got out of it, he rejects Manichaeanism. Now, at this point, Monica comes and she comes to visit her son Augustine while he's in Carthage. Um, and Monica, the whole time Augustine has been away and strayed away from the faith, Monica is back home in North Africa constantly and in continual prayer for St. Augustine. Um, and she meets up with Augustine and she says, you know, have you come to the faith? Do you accept it? And he says, no, I've been playing around with this Manichaeanism stuff, but I've rejected that. So Monica's like, Whew, at least he's not a Manichae anymore. And that's a great relief to her. Um, and she's continually in prayer with him. And she begs Augustine. She goes, I know you're, you're thinking about leaving for Rome. Let me come with you. Or at least if you're going to go, wait until the morning so that we can have today together. Now, if you think about this, Monica's traveled from North Africa to Carthage. This isn't like you traveling from Montgomery to Newburgh, right? This took days and weeks for her to get to her son. And Augustine says, all right, Monica, all right, Mom, um, I won't leave immediately. Why don't you go into the town and pray? Because I know you like to do that thing that you Christians like to do. Go pray for a while, and then we'll go to Rome together. And when Monica goes off to go pray, Augustine sneaks out in the middle of the night and leaves his mother. Um, and this is what he recalls in his confessions is the second major turning point in his life or the second major event. So the first was the pear tree. The second one, he says, is I left my mother alone to her prayer and her tears. Um, and Augustine recalls this as an old man as just it breaks his heart. You can tell it when reading the confessions of doing something like that to his mom. Right. And most of us that have good relationships with our mother. Right. You can hurt anyone. But if you hurt your mom, it's like the worst thing in the world. Right. Don't hurt mom. And that will stick with you anytime you do something evil to mom. Um, and so that really, really does stick with Augustine. So Augustine runs off to Rome um, and he's a brilliant man. And he's offered a professorship actually in Italy, in Milan. Um, and in Milan, he has this really, really major event that happens to him. He encounters St. Ambrose. Um, and Ambrose was a brilliant man and a brilliant orator. And Augustine heard him speak and he was flabbergasted. He was taken aback at the fact that, wait, that guy believes the same things that Monica believes. And he's brilliant. How could a brilliant man believe the same thing that my dumb mother believes? Right. Augustine was a little bit uh, arrogant in his early days. But when he encounters Ambrose and he realizes a brilliant man can accept Christianity, maybe there's something in it for me. Um, he still hasn't converted at this point. He's still struggling because the problem of evil is so prominent um, across the landscape of history and on his own life. Um, so he's searching for answers. And while he's in Milan, he encounters uh, Platonism of sorts. Um, now, as we've talked about before, uh, much of the New Testament theology that we have and much of the way that we view the Bible um, has a very, very platonic slant to it because we're in an Augustinian tradition. So Plato influenced a man by the name of Plotinus who ends up influencing Augustine 
who influences Anselm, who wildly influences our tradition. Um, so Augustine, he's in Milan, and he starts to hear these teachings of this guy by the name of Plotinus. And Plotinus was a man who was, started a school of thought called Neoplatonism, or New Platonism. Plotinus was so arrogant as to believe that he understood Plato better than Plato understood Plato. He thought, no, 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 I know Plato told you this, this is what he meant, but this is really what he meant. Um, and there's certain aspects of Neoplatonism that Augustine loved. Um, Neoplatonism has this idea of goodness as transcendent, and Augustine was very, very attracted to that idea. Um, the way that the Neoplatonists deal with the problem of evil, or the supposed problem of evil, is they say that there is an ultimate oneness. There is something that is the highest goodness, which we all accept, right? As Pastor Vance talked about today, right? The triune God, the ultimate oneness, the, the, the eminence, or the the essence of goodness itself. And the Neoplatonists taught that from this goodness, there is a descending order of things that are slightly less good. So you have God, and then you have, say, the angels, right? And they're, they're good, but they're not quite as good as God, right? They're not fully good in and of themselves. Or even within God himself, right? You have the Trinity, but there's a sort of a hierarchy within the Trinity, right? We have the ontological trinity, what God is, and then we have what's known as the economic trinity, what God does. And in the economic trinity, what God does, there is a certain hierarchy, right? God the Father has a sort of preeminence over the Son, who has a sort of preeminence over the Spirit. And so they descend, none of them are not good, but there's a higher level. And so we get from there to say the angels, who are slightly less good. And then we have people who are certainly good, but less good than the angels. And then we have, say, a dog, right? My dog, Nietzsche. He's awesome. He's, a, he's the best dog in the world, in the history of the world. I'm, I'm, it's, not a, it's not a biased statement. It's a fact. He's the greatest dog. Um, and so below him would be my puggle, because she's a terrible dog, right? She's less good. And then below the puggle might be a lesser creature like a hamster, right? And then below that is a slug, and below that is dirt, and then there's matter. And what the, the Neoplatonists taught is there is no such thing as actual evil, Evil is just the, and I quote, unfocused matter that is so far away from the good, right? By the time we get down to the dirt and the slime, it's so far away from the goodness that it doesn't really resemble good anymore because it's so many steps below. So Augustine's very, very attracted to this idea. God didn't allow evil. God doesn't preordain evil. Evil is just that which is so far away from the good. And so through Plotinus and Neoplatonism, Augustine is introduced to Plato and eventually basically transcribes many, many Platonic concepts into New Testament theology. Um, but at this point, Augustine still isn't completely satisfied. He hasn't uh, completely come to grips with the tradition that Monica was trying to teach him, the Christian tradition, um, until he has the massive major turning point of his life. Um, so the first one was the pear tree. The second one is he left Monica alone to her prayer and tears. And then finally, he has the great conversion scene, right? And everyone's probably familiar with Augustine's conversion because it's probably the most famous conversion in church history. Um, Augustine is sitting alone in a garden, a quiet garden, um, and he's struggling with this problem of evil, even though the Neoplatonism gives him some kind of peace. 
right? That, oh, right, there's not really evil. It's just far away from the good. But even that, could that psychologically sit well with anyone, right? You see the Holocaust, and you're like, well, that's just far away from the good. Really? It's not evil in and of itself. So he's struggling with his problems, and he's sitting alone in a garden, and he's pulling out his hair, and he's sweating, and he starts to hear what he calls in his confessions a sing-song voice of a little girl. And the little girl is saying, tole lege, tole lege, tole lege. And it keeps repeating, and it's driving Augustine insane. So he gets up to the hedges, and he looks over, and he's trying to find this little girl. He can't find her. Looks on the other side, can't find her. And he keeps hearing, tole lege, tole lege, which in Latin means, take it and read. Pick up and read, or take it and read. And so Augustine's like, all right, well, what should I pick up and read? He's got one thing with him, a Bible that Monica gave him. So he takes it. And he does one of those random things where he says, well, I don't know what to read, so I'm going to go just pick a random spot. And he opens up to a particular verse. Anyone know what he turns to? It's a good guess, but no. He turns to Romans 13, 13, right? He turns to Romans, right? Not usually the place you're going to go for comfort. And he turns to Romans 13, 13, and listen to what Romans 13, 13 says. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. It basically says, hey, all the stuff you're doing, stop doing that, right? All the habits you picked up from Patroclus, nope, stop doing that. Put on Christ, right? Don't go to the whorehouses anymore. You got to turn away from that. All that evil you're dealing with, Right? It seemed like the verse was pointed directly at him. And this is where Augustine has his great conversion. Um, so Augustine is at peace. He feels like God directly spoke to me in that verse. And the first thing he wants to do is, what do you think? He wants to go tell Monica. Right? Monica has been her whole life in continual prayer for her prodigal son of sorts. And he goes back to tell Monica, Monica, I believe. And you can imagine the joy of this mother, right? This mother that has spent her whole life, she's actually now the patron saint of mothers for what she did for Augustine. She's also the patron saint of drunkenness or drunks um, in the Catholic Church. And so Augustine goes to his mother who has spent her whole life in prayer for him and says, Monica, I believe. And you can imagine the celebration she has, right? She goes insane. Um, And this is something that most of us, unless you have suffered long with one thing, you can't understand the joy you feel when finally that completely flips and goes to the opposite. Um, Now, I've been wildly lucky in my life. Like, I have experienced, in the scheme of things, zero pain. Um, I've gone through nothing. So the analogy I give here is going to be awful and trite. Um, But I grew up and still am a diehard Red Sox fan. Um, I'm 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 a big, big Red Sox fan. I was much more of a Red Sox fan not that I've given it up, but I was much more of a sports fan in general when I was younger and going through undergraduate school when I cared a lot more. Probably I cared a lot more because I still had this weird thought in the back of my head that I would be in the pros someday. Um, Very misguided notions. Um, But I was born in 1986, and for any of you sports fans know what happened in baseball in 1986. The Red Sox played the Mets um, in the World Series. And the Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918. Um, So roughly 100 years Um, And I'm born in 1986, and we're supposed to beat the Mets, right? This is a Mets team that 
is playing way above their heads. And in game six, to close them out, we get a ground ball to first base, and the ball goes directly through Bill Buckner's legs. Right now, I was an infant, so I don't remember that. But I, at least early on, thought, well, I was birthed into the great suffering of red socksness, um, like the worst suffering. And as a child, I loved the Red Sox, and I loved the Red Sox because my sister, my older sister Rachel, for any of you who are familiar with her, she was a Yankees fan. Um, so as a young child, I asked my father, what's the opposite of her? Um, and he said, well, the Red Sox. So I decided I want to be that. And I followed this team, and I loved them. Um, and they stunk every year. And the stinking Yankees beat them over and over and over again and pounded them into submission. And then finally, when I was sophomore, junior in high school, they started to get really good. Um, they started to spend a lot of money. They brought in free agents like Pedro Martinez and Kurt Schilling, and they signed Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz, bringing all these big-time players. And we look like we're going to finally compete with the Yankees. And the first year, they beat us again. And then 2003, we have the best team in baseball. Unbelievable team. And we actually make it to the American League Championship Series. And we're playing the Yankees. And we make it to Game 7 out of a best-of-seven series. Right? And we have our stud, our best pitcher in baseball on the mound, Pedro Martinez, in Yankee Stadium. And finally, we're going to shove it to the Yankees, and we're going to win. And this game, through some bad managing by Grady Little at the time, left Pedro in the game too long. Um, the game goes into extra innings, and we bring in our knuckleball picture in the 14th inning. A guy comes off the bench for the Yankees, not even their starting third baseman at the time, a guy by the name of Aaron Boone. And none of you know Aaron Boone except for some Yankee fans because Aaron Boone stinks. Um, Aaron Boone's a 200 hitter, bad hitter, and Aaron Boone hits a walk-off home run to beat the Red Sox, knock them out of the playoffs with our best team, right? So I'm suffering, right? It's a horrible thing. And then the next year we come back, 2004, and we have an even better year than 2003. And we make it to the playoffs again. And we make it to the American League Championship Series again, against the Yankees again. And we're excited, right? We are, we are locked and loaded. Pedro, Josh Beckett, Kurt Schilling, we're ready to rock. And what happens is a best of seven series, the Yankees win game one. The Yankees win game two. And then the Yankees in game three slaughter us, 18 to like eight in Fenway Park. Just kill us and go up three games to none. And no team in professional sports history has ever won a best of seven series when down three games to none. Never. But something weird happens. Game four happens. Mariano Rivera's on the mound for the Yankees. He's pitching with a one-run lead to close out the Red Sox and end my misery once again, or start it, really. And Mariano gives up a base hit to an old guy, Dave Roberts. He's 41 years old. He's got a gray beard. He's playing baseball. And Dave Roberts steals second base. And I think he was out. I think the call was missed. But Dave Roberts steals second base miraculously. And then David Ortiz comes up and he knocks him in. And the Red Sox beat Mariano Rivera. And we go down in the series three game to one. It was somewhat of a uh, moral victory of sorts, right? We're not going to win the series. But then we come back and David Ortiz hits a walk-off home run the next game. And now it's three games to two. So we're going back to Yankee Stadium, only needing two wins to beat the, the Yankees. And then in game six, this is the bloody sock game for Kurt Schilling, if anyone remembers, right? He's going out there. He's got torn ligaments in his, in his ankle. And he goes out, and he, this is the game where A-Rod slaps at the first baseman like a little girl and tries to knock the ball out of his hand. And Kurt Schilling beats the Yankees in game six. And then game seven, every Red Sox fan knows we're going to get our heart broken and lose. 
But something weird happens. Johnny Damon gets up in the third inning, and he hits a grand slam. This is Johnny Damon when he was on the Red Sox before he was a trader and went to the Yankees. And Johnny Damon hits a grand slam, and the Red Sox win. And I remember sitting there, and there's one out to go in the last inning, and we've got the game in hand. It's like 8-2, to 7-3, to three, something like that. And the final out happens, and I leap for joy. I was so excited, and I punched a hole through the roof in my parents' living room. And I was just so elated. And people, when they saw me celebrating, my family and my friends at school, they're like, what is wrong with you? How could you be so happy? I was like, no, you haven't suffered, right? Yankees fans win every year. So when they win, it's like, yeah, that's cool, we won. But they won every year, right? I remember uh, my little sister one time, Elizabeth, she had asked my dad when uh, there was a show on ESPN back in the day, it was still on, called PTI, pardon the interruption. And she would always try to watch the show with my father and I to like, fit in with the family. Um, and she'd say, Dad, um, at the beginning of the baseball season, this was like in May, she goes, Dad, can we go to the World Series this year? And he goes, well, Elizabeth, uh, we don't know where the World Series is going to be yet, so we'd have to see. You know, it could be out in California. And she goes, no, no, Dad, it's at Yankee Stadium. And I was, I was like, you know, like, that's what her generation of kids thought. Well, the World Series is just played at Yankee Stadium every year. That's where they have it. And so, like, she could never understand the joy that I felt in that because I had suffered long. Now, take that to the wild extreme of Monica, right? That's the only thing I can compare it to. Her whole life, she had waited for Augustine to repent. And he finally does, comes back to her and says, Monica, I believe. And you know what happens to Monica? You know what happens right away? She dies. Like almost immediately after Augustine tells her, like not on the spot, but within weeks, she just passes away. And she even recalls, and Augustine recalls in my confession, she says, what else had I to live for? That's what, that was my purpose in life. And you see this oftentimes um, with the elderly, right? If there's, you're, they, they live together for so long, they're married, and if one of them passes, it's sad, and the other one passes so shortly, right? Because you've made that thing the center of your life. And when you lose that thing, oftentimes you have nothing else to live for, right? You see that a lot of times with people in retirement. The people that retire and do nothing but play golf every day, they statistically die fast because they have nothing to live for. They have no purpose anymore. And so Monica passed away, um, and she left a great legacy in her son. Um, but with that story told, it leads us to that question of the problem of evil. How do we as Christians deal, like Augustine tried to, with the great suffering we see in the world. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. He's got a fantastic book that deals with this um, called On Pain, um, if anyone's interested in reading it. But Lewis says, Scientists say the race is doomed. Every race that comes into being in any part of the universe is doomed, for the universe they tell us is running down and will sometime be a uniform infinity of homogeneous matter at a low temperature. All stories will come to nothing, all life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. Right? How do you deal if the universe is just going to blow up? and everything's going to be a matter at a low temperature. How can you say a good God would do that? Now, there's many, many uh, stories and events that we can look to to highlight the problem of evil. I'm sure all of us have read certain things uh, that are powerful and captivating that stick with you forever or have events in your minds that um, kind of summarize the problem of evil. 
Um, there's probably no piece of literature that has more vividly stuck in my mind than when I was in, I think, a freshman in college. And they made us read Ellie Wiesel's Night. Right? Most of you have probably read Night by Ellie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor. Um, and some of the stories he tells in there are so vivid that I, prob I believe that they'll probably never leave me. And I recall one in the book that I wrote. I use his story. Um, and this is a story of Ellie Wiesel walking through the Holocaust camp while he was in it and watching some Jewish prisoners hanging. And he says, But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging from this gallow. Right? Wiesel dealt with the problem of evil firsthand. Where the heck was God during the Holocaust? And Wiesel's answer was, he's dead. He's as dead as that small child hanging from those gallows. God would not allow this suffering. Um, I'll quote one last person who I believe was the best literary figure of all time um, with dealing with the problem of evil. Um, if you're shaken in your faith at all, do not pick up Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov um, because he paints, and Dostoevsky was a believer, but he plays the devil's advocate as good as any literary figure of all time. And one of the main characters in the story, Ivan, recalls a great cruelty, and he's trying to deal with the problem of evil. And let me quote, it's not too long. He says, This child of five was subjected to every possible torture by these cultivated parents. They beat her, thrashed her, kicked her for no reason, till her body was one bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty, they shut her up all night in the cold and frost of a privy. And because she didn't ask to be taken in, as though a child of five sleeping in its angelic sound sleep could be asked to come in, they smeared her face and filled her mouth with excrement. And it was her mother. Her mother did this. And that mother could sleep, hearing the poor child's groans. Can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what's done to her, should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fists in the dark and in the cold and, weak, and weep her meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her. Do you understand that, friend and brother, you pious and humble novice? Do you understand why this infamy must and is permitted? Without it, I am told, man could not have existed on earth, for he could have not have known good and evil. Why should we know that diabolical good and evil when it costs so much? Why the whole world of knowledge is not worth that child's prayer to dear, kind God. I say nothing of the sufferings of grown-up people. They have eaten the apple, damn them all, and the devil take them. But these little ones, right, that's powerful stuff. Right? He says, we, Christians are quick to say, well, the problem of evil is, if we would have not, uh, man, God made man with free will, and so we chose evil, and if we didn't have evil, we wouldn't know what good was, right? We wouldn't know what, what joy was if we didn't have suffering. And Dostoevsky says, really, that psychologically eases your, your pain? That eases your answer? How could you deal with it? 
He says, maybe you can deal with the suffering of adults, but how do you deal with the suffering of a child? How do you deal with that? How do you psychologically cope? And this, I think, is a very, very fitting topic for us to cover after we talked last week of the arguments for the existence of God, because maybe the greatest argument against the existence of God, and I certainly believe it to be true, is this, the problem of evil. How can you say that this good God allows these things to happen? And this is when I played devil advocate in my course that I taught at Mount. I taught an arguments for the existence of God versus arguments against. Um, this is why I said, if you're an atheist, this is where you want to pound home. Because this is a huge and massive problem. And not only is it massive, how tangible is it, right? It's real and it's right in front of you. It's corporal and it's incessant. It's every single day the evil of the world, right? All of you can encounter it. All of us that haven't even immediately encountered it have experienced grand events like September 11th, right? Where you know somebody that suffered during that day. Uh, T.S. Eliot, I was introduced to uh, by Mike Bonagora's brother-in-law back in college. I was a college uh, student and Brad McDuffie introduced me to T.S. Eliot. Um, and I fell in love with a lot of his stuff. And one of my favorite poems from T.S. Eliot is Ash Wednesday. And in Ash Wednesday, T.S. Eliot says, where will the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, Lord, there is not enough silence. And in this, he's saying, people can never contact God. We don't have the relationship we should have with God because there's too much distraction in the world, right? We can entertain ourselves in a way far beyond any king or queen could 200 years ago, right? You have an iPad, you have all these technologies, all these distractions, and we can't get in touch with God. We can't ask these big questions because there's no silence. But great evil in the world usually brings about great silence, right? Contemplation. Right? When events like September 11th happen, all of us become philosophers in the platonic sense where we ask the question, why? Why did that need to happen? God, why did you allow that to happen? And there's usually a lot of silence after horrible events like that. I remember on September 11th, I was a sophomore in high school, and I'm at Chapel Field, and early in the day, uh, Coach uh, Bill Spanger Sr., who comes to church here, everyone calls him Coach at the school, I'm sure everyone here calls him coach too. Um, but coach makes an announcement on the loudspeakers and he calls the whole school into the uh, gymnasium and he makes an announcement, we're going to be going home early today, our nation's under attack. And I remember sitting there with my buddies, high-fiving, yes, we get to go home early. Our nation's under attack, that means we're probably bombing someplace out there, it's awesome, right? We get to go home early. And we had no idea what was going on, right? And we're celebrating, and so we get and we go home, and my house is, was the loudest place on the planet, right? I have six brothers and sisters, my mom, my dad, dogs. I got a foreign exchange student, Moke, living in the basement, right? My house is chaotic. There's never silence. And I remember going home that day, and my house had never been that silent. Maybe outside of the time where my sister suffered a horrific accident. But there was never silence in my house. And I go home, I'm just pin drop in my house. Silence. And in that silence, the word can resound. And the word that usually resounds in that suffering is disorder, chaos, confusion. We don't have answers to these questions. So we're going to try to answer some of them today if we can. So how does the Christian deal with the problem of evil when we actually have the silence in a setting like this to think about them? Well, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm not going to give you walking away. You're not going to walk away here feeling good about this. Um, because the answer we get from God about the suffering of, and the suffering and pain in the world is not an answer that's going to psychologically sit well with you, right? If you read the book of Job, 
and you read Job, what answer do we get for all of Job's suffering? Right? This is a powerful, powerful book. And once again, not a book that you're going to use for apologetics. Right? If you're trying to convert somebody, don't start with the book of Job. Because Job goes through immeasurable suffering, and you get to the end of the book, and the question is, so God, why did it happen? And what answer does he give? Yeah, he's like, well, you could never know. Really? That's the answer the Bible gives us? You could never know? That's a very, very unsettling position to be at, especially for Job after all the suffering he went through. Um, but first of all, we must realize that the problem of evil is only a problem for the Christian, right? The problem of evil is not a problem for the non-Christian because the non-Christian is not in a position to call anything evil, right? Because evil, as Aristotle taught us, good and evil must be tied to an understanding of a telos or a purpose. Uh, does anyone in the room here have a nice fancy new phone? Like, I don't have one yet. Anyone have an iPhone or a droid? Kurt, can I see your phone real quick? So Kurt's got this awesome phone. Which one is this? Five. The iPhone 5, right? And Kurt's got this iPhone 5. And I say, Kurt, let me borrow your phone. I have this project I need to work on in my house this week, and I'm building a fence so my dogs don't get out. And I take this phone, and I say, I need to hammer these giant 4x4 four four posts into the ground. And I take his phone, and I bring the phone back, and I say, Kurt, this phone sucks. <laughs> this is an awful phone. And you all look at me and say, what? That's not the purpose of the phone, so you can't say it's good or evil if you don't know the purpose of the thing. Now, the atheist doesn't know the purpose. He doesn't have a purpose. Life is purposeless, right? Existence precedes essence for the existentialist, for the atheist. So he can't call something evil. He can't call it good. But we know that man made imago Dei has a purpose. So we can say, yeah, that thing's evil. Why? Well, because we know what the purpose of that is, right? And this is a huge problem for the modern world that they epistemologically refuse to deal with, right? They will say, you ought to do this, or our society must adopt these rules. We should do this or that. But then you ask, well, what's the purpose of a person, right? You are harming this person, Justin, by not giving them the same rights as you. And I just ask that person, well, what's the purpose of a person? Well, if you can't tell me what the purpose of the thing is, you can't tell me whether or not I'm harming it, right? Because you can't tell me, that I'm harming Kurt's cell phone unless you say what? I know the purpose of that cell phone. It's for making calls. So if that's the first thing we need to establish. Goodness and evil are only things that the Christian has to deal with. The atheistic world cannot deal with these problems. They're a Christian problem. All right, fine. So good and evil, the problem of pain is only something for Christians to deal with. But still, ugh, we have to deal with it. And it's nasty. Um, and I think the problem that a lot of us have with dealing with the problem of evil comes really post-Matthew 6. Um, Matthew 6 is where we get the Lord's Prayer, right? And uh, Christ teaches us how to pray. And the Lord's Prayer starts off how? Our Father, right? And that's a great way to start a prayer. Um, but the modern world, I think the problem of evil is accentuated by the lack of fatherhood and the lack of understanding or the ancient conception of what a father should be. I remember even as a small child not being very well educated and not knowing why, but I was sitting in a classroom at Chapel Field as an eighth grader and we had a particular teacher, I won't mention their name, um, who would pray before class and she started off prayer, hi daddy, 
And I remember cringing as a small child, and I didn't even know why, and there was something that seemed like sacrilege about starting off a prayer, hey, Daddy, it's me. And there was something that was like, well, that's not reverent. There's something not right about calling God your Daddy. Jesus called him Father, but the ancient conception of Father was a lot different than our conception of Father. Right? C.S. Lewis points this out really, really clearly in The Problem of Pain. I want to read you one more quote from him here. It's a very short one, so bear with me. He says, <clears throat> The ancient conception of father was far different from the one most of us hold today. Love between father and son in this symbol, and he's talking about the love of God the Father to Christ. So love from father to son in this symbol means essentially authoritative love on the one side and obedient love on the other. The father uses his authority to make the son into the sort of human being he rightly and in his superior wisdom wants him to be. And now I'll quote myself. This is what I go on in my book to say. Love is not utilitarian in nature. Love does not intrinsically and primarily care about your comfort or misguided conception of happiness. True love, the love that God has for his creatures, is always a demanding love. It demands the perfecting of the beloved. The kindness of a daddy which tolerates anything except suffering in its child is the furthest thing from the biblical conception of love. God loves us, so he does not want us to suffer. Right? Well, that's the daddy idea of love. Right? Oh, daddy just wants to, daddy is my friend, and daddy doesn't want me to suffer. Daddy wants me to be happy at all times. No, love, true love, as Plato taught us, Virtue is one, right? Think about that idea. Virtue is one. And Plato's right when he says this, or I'm convinced he is. Virtue is one. So you can't have love without all the other virtues, which means you can't have love without goodness, and you can't have love without justice. So love, to be love, must conform to goodness and justice. So to love someone and to say, well, I love that person so much, I'm going to accept them the way they are. No, 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 that's not biblical love. Love, you, you can love them, but you must demand them to become perfect. That's what God's love is for us, right? We are made imago Dei, in the image of God. So what is our purpose? To be like God. And when we're not, God's gonna grind on us to make us like him, because that's what love is. And that grinding on us can sometimes produce a lot of suffering. It can be a lot of pain in the world. Now, once again, you're probably not co convinced, all right, yeah, but still, did God have to allow these events to happen? I think eventually we come to that place where we're going to say, well, we can't know. The huge problem that the atheists a lot of times point to with the problem of evil and suffering in the world is this idea of hell. And not just suffering for a moment, but eternal suffering. And how do we deal, how could a good God allow eternal suffering. And a lot of times the Christian communities have this problem, right? I, I like the whole Bible stuff, but I don't believe in all that hell, right? You have the universalists, right? The people that believe. In the end, God saves everyone because God is love and love would not condemn, right? That's what they say. Now we must all take a step back and realize this is a very, very Western problem. The Eastern church has no problem with the conception of hell, right? If you're a Coptic Christian in Egypt, you don't have a problem with the conception of hell. Why? You want justice, right? We haven't suffered here, so we say, yeah, but God really should redeem everyone, right? Everyone has to be saved. That's, a, that's an American version of the gospel, right? When you've really suffered, right? Talk to a Christian who survived the Holocaust. 
They have no problem with the conception of hell, right? Because there needs to be justice. But the church over here, well, God, God's going to save everyone. Well, that's something we have to deal with. Um, well, once again, I'll give you one last quote here from C.S. Lewis. When we're dealing with the problem of hell and eternal suffering, Lewis writes, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself another question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all cost? To give them a fresh start? Smothering every difficulty and offering miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them? They won't be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Right? People say, well, how could God do that? What, what do you want him to do, Lewis says? He's, he's offered himself. He's given a gift to you. Freely receive it. And he says, we don't want it. We don't want it. What do we want? Leave us alone. And Lewis says, well, eventually that's what, he, what happens. They've left alone. They're out of the presence of God, right? Where the Bible says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Away from the goodness, right? In an Augustinian sense. They're so far away from the goodness of God. There's that weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's far away. Now, the final answer, and I'll, I'm sorry I've gone long. The final answer we could give here is, how do we deal with the problem of evil? We can't have an answer. And with talking to a lot of people, I truly believe that we probably won't even get an answer when you're in heaven, right? This is one of those great tests of faith. How could God allow evil in the world? I don't know if you'll ever get an answer that we can philosophically wrap our heads around. Um, but it is a test of our faith. But we do have hope because unlike any person in the world, we can deal with the suffering and the fact that God has embraced it himself, right? We have a God that doesn't just let his people suffer. He says, no, no, no. I know what you're going through, right? I have suffered too. I've entered humanity. I've crashed through space and time to bear the sins of the world. So he's very, very empathetic to the suffering of the world. He can do that, right? What other religion in the world can say that? That their God knows the suffering of man. They can't. So do we end up with a philosophically sophisticated answer to this problem? Maybe not. But no, we have someone that has can be empathetic to our plight. Know that the problem of evil is only something that you have to deal with as a Christian and no one else can call evil evil. Um, and hopefully that can give some of you hope. Um, any questions at all about Augustine, about the problem of evil? I saw that you had your hand up earlier. You still got that question? <laughs> no the, the whole concept of it is, is between good and evil. Without that, what are we looking for? Maybe. May it may not be our purpose, it may not be good for us, but from God's point of view, evil is just as good as good. It serves his purpose. I'd say yes and no, certainly.
I'd, I'd say certainly, at least in the sense of right, all things work together for good. So there is a sense that, yes, there is goodness in it. Um, but I think to say that God views evil and good alike and that maybe that evil can be good um, would be very, very difficult to deal with. Why did we have this then? Why did, why, did he need, why did he need to send his son to get rid of and atone for the evil, right? It's difficult to deal with the atonement and still call, say that good is good. And I, and I see where you're coming from because Augustine dealt with the same thing. Certainly there's something, there's a reason for it, right? Because God is a God of reason. A hundred percent there. Certainly, but we... Certainly, there is, there is definitely, we have to say there's a purpose to it. Any other questions? Concerns? It's a big topic, I know. Yeah. What is the significance of Abba Father? Yeah, well, Abba Father, that's sometimes when Christ is on the cross, right? And his, in his last words, he cries out. And Christ, I think the Abba Father is so beautiful because, right, it's, it's Daddy. Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me when God's on the cross? This is Christ and God telling you through the scriptures that Christ was fully baptized into the human condition. The existential crisis that Elie Wiesel felt, that Dostoevsky felt, that those that suffered after 9-11 felt, the why? Well, Christ was fully human in the sense that he's on the cross and he is fully human. Why have you forsaken me? Right, so I think it's God showing us that Christ in the incarnation wasn't a godish person. No, he was fully person. He was fully God, but he was fully human. He was no different than you or me, right? He suffered like you do. And because he suffered in a not way like, well, I'm God, I can kind of suffer, but let me transcend this suffering. No, no, he fully suffered so he can fully be empathetic to our plight, right? He experienced an atheistic crisis on the cross. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Chesterton says it all the time. Christ for that moment on the cross, experienced atheistic existentialism. What is the meaning of it all? God, why would you put me through this? Father, why would you put me through this? Dad, why would you put me through this, right? So how could he be more sympathetic to us than if he had to go through everything we went through, the fullness of it? So I think that's the real significance of Abba Father, right? He's fully, fully, 100% completely can empathize with us because he was fully human. Um, but, my opinion. Yeah, it's so important, right? And, uh, and that's the, the conception of fatherhood that the world is lacking, right? The modern father that you see on TV is your buddy. He's a dunce. He's your friend. But he's never a father um, that can be demanding that you change to conform to goodness, right? He's only good in the modern eyes if he lets you be whatever you want to be. Right? And that's not good fathering. And with Christ, it's great because we have the Father comes to us in the form of the Son. So there is a more of a connection than maybe we had in the Jewish tradition where the Jews so revered God that they, called, they wouldn't even write his name, right? It was Yahweh, right? That, that was so far away. But now God's closer to us, but there still is a hierarchy, right? The Father is the head of that household. And it can never just be one of us. It can never just be your buddy and play thing. Or we, how do we deal with the crisis of pain when it comes suffering in? When God, when the dad has to inflict pain on his kids, right? When your kids get out of line and you got to punish them. Well, if you're just their buddy, 
How can you deal with that? How can they understand that? There has to be you're with them, but you're separate from them. You're different. Um, and that's very, very important. I guess I'll be experiencing that soon. <laughs> Anybody else? I know I've kept you long. All right, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, um, thank you for today and thank you for this time um, where your word can resound because we have the silence and the freedom because of those that have uh, paid for that freedom and blood that we can actually come here before you and talk about these things where your word can resound loudly um, and that we can hopefully hear that the answer that comes back is not disorder, um, but that there is an order and there is a purpose and there is a plan and that there's a telos, um, even if we don't know what exactly that telos is. Um, thank you for your gift of your son so that we know that our suffering is not in vain and that you can understand our suffering and have understood our suffering and has given us an answer to that suffering. In your name we pray, amen.